Greetings and salutations in the name of the Lord. I hope you're having a fabulous day. Join me for Coffee, the Bible, and Page as we continue our little jaunt through 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul is speaking some hard truths on some very difficult subjects. And today will be no different. That's a continuation from last week. I missed my uh, wrap-up Saturday due to technology of the internet. Hopefully the internet will treat us more kindly today. Let's get started. Here is chapter 6. I'm going to read the, the chapter through, and then I'll come back and cover the stuff that's in red here for those of you who are watching. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body, for it said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. All right, let's come back up here at the beginning of this. Paul is addressing the issue of believers bringing lawsuits against believers, ending up in a civilian court. I say civilian, as opposed to a Christian uh, venue. Do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? The Roman legal system prevented those of inferior status from bringing, from prosecuting their superiors, such as patrons and magistrates. But those considered superior in class could sue those 
lower in class. If you did go to court, the jury would be from upper classes. The deck would be stacked against anybody from a lower class. So, if you found yourself in court with someone of a status higher than you, the odds are stacked against you from the very beginning. There's that inequity to be considered. Don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? It's funny, in this instance, Paul isn't making a separation between people of class or status. If you are in the Lord's church, if you are a member of the Lord's church, you're on equal footing. There will come a day, and Paul is probably referencing a prophecy out of Daniel, from what I could find, uh, where he's talking about judging of the world, where the Lord and his saints will judge the world. And that includes people lower status, higher status. Paul makes the claim later on in one of his other epistles that there, in God's kingdom there is neither Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free. Ground is level at the foot of the cross. We, ha- cross. we have equal standing in the church. And what's happening here in Corinth, again, is it's coming back to that whole thing of worship of status and and position in society. And apparently that was made, had made great inroads into the church and there were still divisions based on class and society. Trivial cases indicates it's disputes between Corinthian Christians come under the aegis of civil law rather than criminal law, which would cover things like treason and murder. Civil law include areas like legal possession, breach of contract, damages, fraud, injury. Civil law would be a civil lawsuit would be the kind of lawsuit that could be brought from one person to another, whereas major criminal law could be prosecuted from the state to an individual, where the state would prosecute somebody for murder or for treason. Perhaps some of the social elite from church at Corinth were bringing trivial civil cases against fellow Christians in order to establish their own position. I I read something very interesting that said that sometimes uh, people would bring a civil lawsuit against somebody, not because they felt they'd been wronged, but to increase their status or their social standing or to damage somebody that they had a problem with. If you were to lose a civil case, the, the, civil law, the civil court was a playground for some of these people. And Paul is really warning against the inequity of that system. He says it's not going to favor Christians. Don't you know that we're going to judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? All right, let's stop and think about this for a second. The preaching of the gospel in a, in a society such as Corinth would include instruction about how to live. And the Christian way of living would be in opposition to much of what general society at that time held as okay. For instance, sexual immorality. There were there were standards that were totally acceptable in that society, which God forbids. And there would be preaching against that, 
lifestyle, those are the kind of lifestyles that we're preaching against. Lots of things that would be would run in opposition to the lifestyle of the world around them. And if a Christian were to find himself in a court to be judged by those whom he might have been preaching against, do you see what that would do to the reputation of the church? That the court would take advantage of that and take it and work to bring the church down a peg. I mean, Paul is saying, look, when you bring your cases before people who don't believe, who aren't believers, it's not going to work out well for you. Not in that society. The system is corrupt from the very beginning. Only people of upper class, they most likely would have the upper hand in any kind of a lawsuit. They could sue somebody beneath them. And regardless of whether their lawsuit was uh, justified or not, the odds were greatly in their favor because of their status in society. So Paul's saying, you really want to bring your cases before those kind of people? Really? Since the Corinthian church contains members of the social elite, the powerful and well-born, they have been, they have been educated to judge such legal cases. They were the ones from whom uh, society would draw upon to adjudicate criminal cases and, and uh, civil cases. Surely among this group in your church would be some that are capable enough to deal with this in church. Paul is saying, look, you, you don't need to go to the civilian courts. And the other thought was... Christianity was on shaky legal ground with the Roman Empire at this point. Uh, they're, they're coming out from under the protection of being considered a sect of Judaism. They're, be, they're becoming considered a separate entity. They preached that there was only one God. In some circles, the emperor was considered a God. And all citizens were required by law to offer sacrifices to the emperor and there is no God there's no king but Jesus and so that would put the Christian church on shaky ground and to appear in court as a Christian and to be convicted in that court of some illegality in a court that represented the state, the government, the emperor that would start to bring Christianity at least as far as an impression goes, it would present Christianity as an illegal enterprise. There are illegalities involved with Christianity. And that courtroom would be a place where these things that would be in opposition to the Roman government would come out. And so Paul's trying to avoid that. Don't bring your cases between brothers to a civil civilian court. The very fact you've lost this among you says you've already been completely defeated. And then Paul says something really interesting. He's hinting at the fact that it would be better to allow yourself to be wronged or cheated than to resort to court to get your own back. It would be better for the Christian to allow himself or herself to be cheated or wronged than it would be to stand up for your rights in some cases.
Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's, Paul wants them to take the long game. Here's the deal. If you're truly a believer in God, the immortal, invisible, all-knowing, all-powerful God who sees all, the God who sees us, if you truly believe in the sovereignty of God, then you have to truly believe that God is a God of justice and he will deal with those that wrong his people. So don't spin your wheels trying to get justice for yourself. When God, leave it in God's hands. That's what he's saying. It would be better to be wronged or cheated than to go to court and try to get justice yourself. God will take care of things. My non-Christian friends call it karma. Karma will get you. Um, I say the sovereign God forgets nothing. And God will also remember all those who treat his people poorly. And might I add that Paul has already hinted at the fact that the fact that those in the church who are acting like the world around them could in fact be unbelievers? Isn't that what he told them to do with the man who was having a uh, a wrong relationship with his stepmother? He told the church to kick them out, to excommunicate them, to treat them as if they were an unbeliever? Something really important from the last uh, lesson. If a sin so characterizes a professing believer's life that they refuse to repent of that sin and others can label them by that sin, then the church must remove that person from them. The thought that comes to mind from that for me is what it, when somebody mentions my name, Paige Garwood, what is the first thought that comes to people's mind about me? That he's a Christian? That would be my hope. Or is there a sin that so defines me that that's how they think of me? For instance, I'm not saying I do this because I don't. Paige drinks every day. He's drunk all the time. He says he's a Christian, but you know what? He's drunk all the time. I'm being known as a drunkard. That sin identifies me. When something identifies you, that tells people who you are. When I was at the Armed Forces, Armed Forces School, yeah, well, yeah, when I was at the Armed Forces School of Music, I was known as a believer. When I was getting my grad degree at uh, Vermont College of Fine Arts, I was known as a Christian first, a composer second. That's my goal. That's my aim. I want to act in such a way that Christ is reflected in my life. In the Corinthian church, Christ is not being reflected. Do you remember when Jesus says the greatest, when he was asked what's the greatest commandment? He says, oh, that's easy. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two, all the commandments hang. Paul is trying to get these people in Corinthian, in the Corinthian church to realize Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean taking them to court. It doesn't mean taking up an unnatural relationship with your stepmother. It, it, you stop and think about all the commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Keep the Sabbath holy. Um, don't 
worship any other God before me, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. Things like, I'm not going to steal from my neighbor. I'm not going to uh, lie about my neighbor. I am not going to hurt my neighbor. I am not going to steal my neighbor's wife. I'm not going to steal my neighbor's cow. I'm not going to commit slander. If you really are loving your neighbors yourself, then these issues that Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians wouldn't be an issue, would it? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. All right, there was this thought going around, apparently, in the Corinthian church, and maybe in other churches at the time. Um, people observe salvation as a free gift, and it is, all right? For by grace am I saved through faith, and even that faith's not of itself. It's a gift of God, so that I don't, so no one can boast. But then they said, well, since I've been saved, and saved is forever, it doesn't matter what I do in this life. I'm saved. It's like, I bought my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. I can do what I want. That's a loose translation. The apostle says, observing such freedom of action may not benefit the Christian not to be mastered by anything. One may become enslaved by those actions in which one freely chooses to indulge. I shared this the other day, and I'll share it again. I have uh, several friends of mine who have wrestled with addiction their entire lives. And all of them are in remission, but they've all told me the same story. And the story goes like this. In the beginning, their drug of choice was indulged in because it made them feel good. Uh, it was frivolous. It, was, it wasn't a regular thing. They just took it because it made them feel good. And, but they kept up the habit of taking it to the point where at one point, some point, their brain chemistry changed and now they couldn't not take it. Now they were becoming a slave to that thing, that drug of choice that they were taking. They were being they were mastered by that drug, wherever it was alcohol, heroin, meth, whatever. They were mastered by it. It starts off as a choice and ends up being slavery. You can become enslaved by your actions. And so we have to be careful not to adopt the I'm saved, I can do anything I want. Paul goes on. He repeats this thought in chapter 10, verse 23, where he says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial. Not everything is constructive. Personal freedom and desire for one's rights are not the only considerations. One must also consider the good of others. Uh, My friends who became addicts, they never considered the damage they were causing the people around them. They never considered the hurt they were causing the people around them by their addiction. It was all about them. And once they become an addict, they're totally under the control of that thing that they'd given themselves to. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. All right. Apparently that was a saying going around the Corinthian church. Claiming that physical acts of eating and digesting food have no bearing on one's inner spiritual life. And that's true. It's just food. Food goes in, food comes out. 
So the physical act of promiscuous sexual activity does not affect one's spiritual life. They're saying, look, the food that goes into a body and nurses our body doesn't affect our spiritual life. So the things I do to my body don't affect my spiritual life. And they included promiscuous or sexual activity. Some Corinthians claimed that there was no resurrection of the body or that the resurrection had already occurred in a spiritual sense. So it didn't matter what one did with one's body. The whole resurrection, spiritual resurrection thing, it's all over and it's already completed. Uh, this body, I can do what I want. I can live how I want. Get that whatever pleasure I want to get. It doesn't affect my spiritual life. Paul here declares the dignity of the human body. It is intended for the Lord and will be raised. Granting that food and stum- in the stomach are transitory, Paul denies that what one does to one's body is unimportant. Apparently, some Corinthians viewed their salvation as a one-time forever get-out-of-jail-free card or what I call fire insurance. Now that I'm saved, I can live however I want. Nothing could be further from the truth. Loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that will bring about a transformation of your character and the way you live. James said, look, you say you have faith. I show you my faith by what I do, by how I live. A changed life is the mark of a believer. Some Corinthians were saying, I don't need to change. They, for some reason, they got a wrong idea. Some, maybe some false teachers came through. They surely didn't get this idea from Paul. But they apparently believed that it didn't matter how they lived their life. They're a Christian, and so they're going to heaven, so they can do whatever they want in the here and now. And Paul has to be wringing his hands in disbelief at this. Because nothing could be further from the truth. He goes on to talk about how the body was not meant for sexual immorality. And that's the overall message of this chapter and with the chapter previous. Sexual immorality is not something our body was destined for. We are to flee from it. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. There's something about sexual sin that destroys us from the inside out. Paul's saying, look, all other sins, they they don't affect your uh, your eternity. They don't affect your witness. So, you know, there's, but there's something about sexual sin that absolutely changes us. And we have to be careful. Don't you know? And then he says, don't you know that your bodies are temples? The Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. There's a verse in Revelations. John says, And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Now, if you trace how the temple fits in the Bible storyline, it richly enhances what we just covered in 1 Corinthians 6 about our body as a temple. It's unthinkable to have immoral sex in the most holy place of the Jewish temple. 
But now Paul argues a a person's physical body is the most holy place. We are where the Holy Spirit resides. In the temple, you have the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place is where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. Now Paul is saying, that's us now. We are the place that the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And for a priest to even think about committing indecent acts in the holy of holies, that's how we should consider our bodies. Our body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where the Holy Spirit resides. And when we commit immorality, it's it's unthinkable. It should not happen. That should not be part of our thinking. That should not be part of our life. We must not defile our body in that way. It's a sacred space. It must be kept pure. Tough stuff. Paul's bringing it. And uh, if I were Paul, I I would be sorely disappointed right now. I'd be angry and I'd be disappointed that this kind of thinking and that this kind of activity would be going on in a church that I had planted. I wonder how Paul's going to deal with in chapter 7. What's he got going on there? Well, we'll find out. As for right now, this is it. Here's my coffee. I'm Paige. And I, dear folks, am out of here. Bye-bye.